Welcome to Lost in the Movies. Today we continue looking at the scenes of Season 1, Episode 5, but this time we're focusing on the scenes that uh, do not involve the Laura Palmer storylines, so all the non-Laura subplots. And then we're going to talk about the uncanny elements at the end of this episode. For the Packard family life, we get a nice little domestic scene where Pete invites Josie to go fishing. It's night. He's just come back from the mill. So something like chopped a lot of wood, made a lot of lumber. And uh, he tells her there's a mixed doubles tournament coming up with fish. And she says, oh, I don't know the first thing about fish sort of playing cute as she does with him. And, uh, you know, she agrees to go with him. So he's all excited. There's nothing for the Briggs family life subplot this this uh, episode. And for the Horn family life, we get a very nice sense of Audrey and Ben's relationship here. They're tense. You know, she says, are you ashamed of me? And his only response he can say is, you're my daughter, which is not really an answer. So as she comes up to him in that office and uh, is trying to get the job from him, he says he wishes he could depend on her in a trying time. She says she wants to help with the family business. That's her way to kind of sneakily get him to give her a job is to make it all about their family relationship. So she's very good at exploiting certain things like she was with the Norwegians, um, you know, maybe even with Donna getting her interest by raising certain things she didn't know she's she's an excellent uh exploiter manipulator <laughs> very good at this so she actually gets ben who and and because it's somewhat sincere too you know she obviously is a little bit upset that he ignores her so much and has such low uh i don't know if it's ignores so much as just have this kind of low opinion of her she says you know you need somebody to take over the business and it's obviously not going to be johnny so it's got to be her and well, there's a lot going on in this scene in terms of the Horn family melodrama. It's very Horn heavy. Like it's as, you know, very much as much about their relationship as it is about her plan to go on to Horn's department store. And she also talks about Laura, says she was cut down like a flower that had just begun to bloom. You know, she's acting like Laura was her close friend in this scene again. Like she often does. She does this with the Norwegians too. And she, I, I get a sense, really, she kind of wishes in a way that Laura was her friend. So even though she's putting this on and almost kind of mocking her death in a way by making these sort of situations out of it. I think there's also a sense of regret because her father paid attention to Laura and saying to her and all that. And so the scene ends with that punctuation. You know, she's hugging Ben and she's not smirking because she's looking away. He can't see her reaction. Now she could smirk. She could kind of laugh. She got him. But instead, she actually still looks kind of sad. And she's looking at the picture of Laura and her on his desk. And she says to him, please let me be your daughter again. He prods to, you know, her to, well, why don't you go upstairs, make a bed or something, you know. And she doesn't take that seriously. She says, you know, I, I want a real job. So he's going to send her to Horn's department store. Okay, for the Ghostward Packard sawmill plot, there's quite a lot going on in this episode, mostly to do with Josie, but also Catherine and Ben. So actually, I take that back. <laughs> Let's say it has mostly has to do with the Packard sawmill plot. Um, but actually, no, Ben deals with Ghostward. So yeah. There's a lot going on with Ghostwood and Packard Sawmill this episode. Josie is staking out the Timber Falls Motel, and inside that motel, Ben and Catherine are flirting and plotting together, and she ends up telling him where the ledger is. He kind of prods her a little bit. Eh, where's the other ledger? And she laughs, and he's kind of like, yes, but where is it? And uh, Invitation to Love is playing in the background as, as they're talking. Catherine, uh, when, when Ben exits this room, uh, she discovers his poker chip. The, from One-Eyed Jacks. So that's an interesting little link there. There's an establishing shot of the Timber Falls Motel this time. Uh, there was a shot a couple episodes ago of Ben and Catherine in the motel, but it was just the room. 
I forgot that the motel was in episode one because we don't see that shot till now. It feels like we're establishing it for the first time with the lady pushing the laundry through the parking lot. And we get a lot of shots in the parking lot of the police. There's a totem pole there, so they were obviously dressing the locations. Everybody is out and about this time. They're really moving beyond their little sphere. And, uh, you know, I, I love that about this episode, as I've said a million times. But I think the reason I forgot the motel was in episode one is because it's so much plainer there. It's just like a generic motel room, whereas here we're getting the whole lay of the land. I love how Catherine says to Ben when she's uh, when he's kind of asking her where, you know, where the other the second ledger that she hid is. She says, even Pete the Poodle doesn't know about that one. But he walked right into the room as she was hiding. That's always weirded me out about that episode, the couple episodes back where she's listening on the intercom and then she places the ledger in the desk. First of all, why didn't she just get it in there right away? Why is she pausing to listen and stand there when somebody could come in and see her? And sure enough, Pete opens the door. Immediately, she's pushing it down like, what, is he blind? Of course he can see it's there. But whatever, she's convinced he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't. And also, of course, there's the memorable line as Ben is uh, leaving their their bed and going to take a shower he says i'm gonna go give little elvis a bath and he holds up a little elvis figurine it's hilarious and the reason they did this is they had that line written and they're like we can never get away with that that's way too lewd you know uh we have to cover for that somehow and they said well what if you know he's not being euphemistic referring to little elvis what if he really has a little elvis figurine so they found like a little knickknack and have him wave it so that they could tell the censors oh no he's not you know, he's not talking about anything else. He's talking about little Elvis. As the police are leaving the Timber Falls Motel, Hawk sees Josie's tracks. He, he notices somebody was there, and he's able to recognize the treads and tell Harry this. Later on, for the Ghostwood part of the plot, we have Ben uh, talking to Jerry on the phone and uh, telling him, uh, you know, he, Jer Jerry is, uh, he's, he's with all these Icelanders. They're on some plane flying somewhere they're all drunk and ben talks to one of the icelanders who's making a joke he says and we only hear ben's side of the conversation so he says no i don't know what you get when you cross a norwegian and a swede there's a pause oh very good very good so he's not really impressed with this joker but you know if they have money and they're willing to buy the land then uh, great maybe there'll be a substitute for the norwegians and then uh later on uh in the same scene after audrey leaves the room Ben gets a call, somebody saying to meet him by the river. So he's off to do that. And we find out pretty quickly who that is. It's Leo. So Leo meets Ben in the woods, and Ben kind of mocks him. It's supposed to be a secret meeting, but he's like a bright red sports car. Uh, is just parked out there in the woods. Who knows how he even got, the, got it out there that far with all the trees. And uh, they talk together, and Ben tells him he wants him to burn down the mill. He says insurance investigators should read arson and it's planned for three nights away. So they're going forward with this, what him and Catherine talked about. So at this point, you know, as we have for the Palmer mystery, we might as well take a much briefer moment and, and summarize uh, what's going on here. So we know that Ben and Catherine are plotting to burn the mill down, and there's also a couple ledger books that they have to cover up because that shows why they're burning the mill down, the fact that it actually is uh well we don't we don't know the the full details of that yet but there's some sort of insurance scam it seems he says insurance investigators should read arson so the ledger and the arson are a part of this and leo's going to do it in three nights and meanwhile josie is watching because she thinks something's going on not just threatening necessarily the mill but maybe threatening her because she thinks they may have killed andrew so 
that's the situation here. But wait, there's a uh, there's going to be a complication coming up with Josie. We'll get to that as we get to the Hank in prison subplot. But one last part of the Ghostwood Packard uh, plot this episode is that uh, Harry calls Josie and says he can't make it over tonight. There was a break in the uh, Palmer case, but uh, was she at the motel today? And she like very limply is just like, oh, I. I, I can't talk right now. I, I'm sorry. I have to go and hangs up on him. So she doesn't want to tell him that she was at the mill, which is a little odd. Um, you know, is she just being protective, not wanting to get him involved in this danger or something else? Shelly, Bobby, and Leo, that subplot. We have Shelly and Bobby making out, and she shows him a gun that she's hidden away. And she says, you know, he's he's like, uh, is Leo going to come back? He's nervous. And she says, oh, I can hear Leo's Corvette a mile away. So she's got like this lay of the land where Leo is abusive as hell. He's dangerous to the point where she needs a gun. But she also feels sort of confident that she can handle the situation, at least in terms of having an affair openly in his house. You know, it's, it's strange. Bobby is wearing this weird purple shirt that says Dick on the lapel. <laughs> For some reason, I guess they just thought it was a funny prop to put him in, a funny costume to put him in. She, you know, gives him, shows him the gun, gives him the shirt, so he's got a way to set Leo up. And she says, teach me, Bobby, when he asks if she knows how to use the gun, and he kind of walks over uh, full of lust. And... It's funny, there's a little bit of an odd winking link to the Andy storyline here. Two characters who are be, have to be taught how to use guns, uh, but in very different fashion, I'm sure. Later at the diner, Norma and Shelley are discussing their man problems. Shelley says to uh, Norma, I've got one too many man, one man too many in my life, and I'm married to him. Sound familiar? They were supposed to discuss the situation in previous episodes. First, in episode one, there was a deleted scene as they like go to work. And then I think she picks her up for work or something. Then in episode three, uh, she was supposed to see the gun in Shelly's purse and kind of make a comment to her like, well, what are you doing with that? But uh, instead, they this is, this is the episode where they first discuss it. And she tells Norma, Leo doesn't talk, he hits. Says he seemed like a sexy older guy with a cool car, but it turns out all he wanted was a maid he didn't have to pay. So we're getting a little sense of how she got into this situation in the first place. And finally, at the end of the episode, Bobby leaves the bloody shirt in Jacques' apartment, jumps out the window, and runs down the alley, and they're unable to catch him, which is good for him, because I would imagine him being at the crime scene, uh, you know... <laughs> Maybe Cooper would continue to say, oh, he didn't do it, but it would be extremely suspicious. For the James and Donna romance, James calls Donna from the diner. Uh, Doc Hayward's cooking in the background. They're going to have a church potluck dinner. And Donna invites James, and James says, I don't think I'd be very good company. So we're getting a sense of this sort of Hayward, middle class, embedded in the community, and James is a little bit of this loner on the fringe and that kind of dynamic in their relationship. And I think it's interesting to consider, it's not just that the Laura Palmer... You know, the, the trauma of losing their friends is haunting this otherwise healthy relationship. In a way, going to look for Laura's killer is maybe a helpful distraction from some of the the issues that could come up in their relationship. Later, of course, when they're looking for the half-heart in the uh, woods and resolving to solve Laura's murder, we're getting another sense. And, and as I said before, they say that this is as much about their relationship as it is about Laura, but... You know, this is a complicated scenario that they found themselves in. There's nothing for Nadine's drape runners in this episode. I think first episode where we haven't dealt with that at all. And this is the third episode of nothing for Mike and Donna's relationship. Pretty soon that uh, it's looking like we're going to have to put that in the dormant 
or abandoned plot line, uh, or maybe resolved, although they never really resolved it, you know, Mike. Last we saw of him, of him dealing with Donna, him and Bobby were sitting outside the house like, we're going to fix up uh, James, so maybe Bobby can involve him with that, but even so, it seems like their actual romance is, has withered away, if, it ever, if you ever could call it that. For Ed and Norma, when Norma and Shelley are discussing their man problems, uh, she says, you know, that... Uh, she hasn't told Hank yet that she wants to divorce him for Ed. So they're clearly in a somewhat similar situation. I also like a few other things in this scene, little little moments that make me kind of chuckle. For one thing, uh, at the beginning of the scene, she's collecting a few coins and tip from a customer named Toad. And she says, thanks, Toad. I'll be sure to get this into my retirement fund ASAP. We actually, quote unquote, met Toad earlier. I noticed he walks in the background of another scene. He's just sort of a patron who we see pop up in the diner from time to time. And uh, at the uh, also another cool thing, there's a poster in the background that says "Say No to Ghostwood." So there's opposition to this development project that Ben is involved with. It's a nice, very brief sense of like the community politics and what's going on there, uh, because so far we've just seen it through these char certain characters' eyes. And finally, Norma tells Shelley they're going to go get some makeovers tomorrow, and they're going to be the knockouts of the Double R. It's a nice little bonding moment with them. There's a few moments I've noticed. This this is an interesting episode. It's got, in terms of uh, both male bonding and female bonding, they've got scenes where it's just the men kind of talking this sort of stereotypical way about like, you know, oh, women, they're from another planet. What are you going to do? And let's fire our guns and stuff like that. And then you have the women kind of talking about relationships does not pel pass the uh, Bechdel test because they're, <laughs> they're always talking about the men in their lives. But, you know, you've got Norma and Shelley and you've got Donna and Audrey in the bathroom, uh, Audrey kind of talking about Cooper and wanting to impress him and all this stuff. But I love the kind of, uh, I, lo I love the like chemistry between the, the actors and all of these different scenes. I think this episode does a great job of putting people together, sometimes in new ways, sometimes, you know, characters have been around each other, but we're seeing new kind of stuff come out in their relationships. For the Hank and prison plot, that's a big one this episode. We have Norma at the prison and the, Parole, the the uh, parole officer that we met last week, Wilson Mooney, comes out and he apologized to her if he came on a little strong. Obviously, he's nervous now of like, oh, shit, is she going to tell her husband I was hitting on her? And she goes in, she's or Hank comes out, rather, and he talks to her. And uh, he has an ominous piece of theme music right away. So it's kind of unsettling us. Like, even though his words are all like, hey, I'm reformed, I'm back. I also uh, really enjoy the demeanor that the actor Chris Mulkey kind of brings to this part where, yes, we can tell he's kind of sketchy, but he also kind of comes off as like, like, it's not that usual way that people play somebody who's bad pretending to be good, where they're just like, oh, I'm, I'm so good. You know, he like actually has the sort of ring and truth to his, in his voice. Like he comes off as a sort of convincing con man where you know the guy's pulling his legs, but you can't exactly put your finger on how. And I, th I think that's great. So I'm going to uh, link a character piece I wrote about him for my character series in the show notes. But it's got spoilers, so if you're a new new viewer, don't check it out now. It's, it talks about you know his uh, upcoming role in the series. Also, uh, there's an establishing shot to this scene of this sort of prison. And it's an unusual kind of shot for Twin Peaks, especially in this episode. You're getting all of these 
quirky, colorful locations where they've got fun set dressing stuff, but this is just like a straight-up prison guard tower. It feels a little like a pilot location where it's more drab and down-to-earth, kind of functional. There's a lot of places like that, I think, in the pilot because they're shooting in, a real, in real locations, you know, that they have some character, but they're also sort of grounded in everyday use, whereas on the series they can make it a little more like Disneyland. So in the parole meeting where they're the hearing i mean where uh hank is is sitting there he's playing with a little domino in his hand back and forth back and forth kind of a weird little touchstone and uh, he says that he killed a vagrant who nobody knew who was sleeping by the side of the road he makes this whole speech about why did this happen was it fate maybe it's a good thing i came here i'm ready to turn my life around and so forth and norma just sits in the back of the room just kind of soaking this all in and says, you know, she'll give him a job. She owns a diner. He can he can work for her there. And she's just clearly so unhappy with this situation. Later on, when uh, Norma and Shelley are, you know, discussing their problems, Norma gets a call, picks it up, and sure enough, Hank has been given parole, so he's getting out of jail. And she is uh, not thrilled, not thrilled at all. Out in the woods, when Ben is meeting with Leo, Something interesting happens. He says, offhand, you could almost miss the line if you weren't looking for it. Well, Hank said you were gifted, and I believe him. It's like, oh, hmm. Okay, first of all, did Hank say that years ago, or have you been communicating with him in prison? And secondly, clearly Hank is involved with Leo. He's, you know, he's not just somebody who accidentally hit a vagrant and went to jail. He's somebody involved in some... He's a bad dude, it seems. You know, there's a suggestion of that. And then finally... Josie gets a letter, opens it up, and it's a sketch of Hank's domino. And she's looking at it, and she's all nervous. She walks into a back room. There's like a stuffed bear behind her creating a sense of dread, and the phone rings. She picks it up, and it's Hank. Pretty amazing timing for him to call right when she opens that envelope. I mean, you know, how does he know that that's, <laughs> that's the moment? Because she could have opened it any time of day. But I guess he was waiting until he knew for sure she was going to read it, and she did at the last moment. We get a canted angle in this scene as she approaches the phone. Supposedly only Tim Hunter was allowed to use this kind of dramatic feature. This is something you see a lot in The Third Man, that uh, kind of slanted angle where the camera's set up at a tilt. And Hank is sucking a domino as he talks to her. He says, you get my letter? Good. And he hangs up, and she shivers. And uh, it's not the fun kind of shivering that, that Audrey was talking about. She is afraid. So looking at this, Hank is already subtly involved with three different storylines. Obviously the Norma stuff that he was already involved with, but now also tangentially with Leo and explicitly with Josie. And what does this say about Josie? I think that's an interesting scene because why is Hank calling her and threatening her? What is even his connection to her? She is becoming a more mysterious figure in this episode. She's not telling Harry about why she was at the motel, and she's getting this call, and we're getting a sense that she's got a more complicated life than we've seen so far. So speaking of Josie, for the Josie and Harry subplot, uh, we have Hawk telling uh, Harry that Josie was at the motel and then uh, Harry calling her. So we kind of covered that already in other subplots, but that keeps their little romance going, but in a new direction where now he's suddenly... Looking a little worried, like, what's she not telling me? For the subplots established in episode one, we have the Cooper and Audrey flirtation. Uh, when Audrey and Donna are talking in the bathroom, Audrey says, A tall, dark, and handsome stranger falls madly in love with me, takes me away to a life of mystery and intrigue. So she thinks that she's going to impress Cooper with this whole plan, and 
Audrey just kind of goes, the FBI, or uh, sorry, Donna just kind of goes, you know, what the FBI agent dream on, Audrey. For the cocaine and Twin Peaks, the criminal activity side of the plot, we have Bobby telling Shelley about Leo's drug connection. And then in the woods, Leo shows uh, Ben Bernie's body. Ben calls the Renaults glue-sniffing squish heads, and Leo has this weird, faint smile. I think it's the first time maybe in this entire series that we've seen him actually crack a smile, uh, talking about how he broke up their act. It's like he's finally found something he enjoys. You know, this has just seemed like a hard, joyless, you know, brutal character who just lives. But now we're seeing, oh, no, this, there's more to him. Maybe this is the, you know, the side that also came out, whatever kinky stuff you know he was up to in that magazine with his truck advertised in flesh world in the premiere but he's smiling like oh no uh you know i killed the guy and he's like he loves it so shows him the body where uh bernie's all tied up in canvas and he tells ben ben is clearly disconcerted he ben has lost his cool a little bit he's a little disconcerted now that he's consorting with a murderer uh, he tells ben you know i told him that uh if he ever turned me in i'd kill him and so Ben asks, well, did he turn you in? And he says, no, he shouldn't have trusted me. <laughs> He's going to kill him anyways. Pretty brutal. Here we have a connection established right away between three separate criminals, Leo, Ben, and Hank. And two of them we didn't even know for sure until now were criminals. Uh, this is an interesting new turn for Ben, too. We saw him plotting sort of corporate intrigue. But in order to do so, he has to kind of consort with these, you know, quote-unquote low lives as well. So for the uh, police bookhouse boys investigation part of the cocaine and Twin Peaks subplot, all we get is that... Uh, uh, Harry has put an APB all points bulletin on Jacques and Bernie after he made bail. So we know early in the episode that Bernie's out. And at the end of the episode, we know Bernie's dead. Goodbye, Bernie. From episode two, we have the Ben and one-eyed Jacks plot. I think it makes more sense to refer to it as that instead of more generically one-eyed Jacks because one-eyed Jacks is getting connected now to a lot of different subplots. So it's not just a plot in and of itself. But for Ben's connection to it, we have Catherine discovering his poker chip. Worth pointing out, this chip is not missing because this is the second poker chip or the first po of two poker chips we get this episode. This one's not missing a piece. So it's not the one that Laura chomped down on, but it is a little ominous. And then we have Audrey saying she wants to go to cosmetics. And as we may recall, when Ben introduces One-Eyed Jacks, he says there's a new girl there freshly scented from the perfume counter. So there's something, some sort of connection, it seems, between the perfume counter and One-Eyed Jacks. And then for the invitation to love uh, subplot, I guess you could call it, we have on screen Emerald, one of the uh, twins in this soap opera. I'm talking about the soap opera within a soap opera that Lucy's watching. We have uh, Emerald flirting with Chet. She's kind of the bad twin and flirting with this nebbishy guy. And uh, then Lucy describes what's going on on the show to uh, Harry and Andy when they walk in. And uh, here's what she says. Thanks to Jade, Jared decided not to kill himself. And he's changed his will, leaving the towers to Jade instead of Emerald. But Emerald found out about it. And now she's trying to seduce Chet to give her the new will so that she can destroy it. Montana's planning to kill Jared at midnight. So the towers will belong to Emerald and Montana. But I think she's going to double cross him and he doesn't know it yet. Poor Chet. Got all that? Good. Okay. So another funny thing about this, and this is kind of the main purpose of these of these little snippets of this ongoing drama on Invitation to Love, is they often connect to things we're seeing in the real world. Uh, in this case, you know, maybe there's other stuff this episode, but the explicit visual connection is uh, Sarah is talking about Laura's necklace, and then we cut 
to the screen. Invitation to Love comes up, and what's dangling right there but Emerald's jewel necklace in the frame. We kind of pull out from there. The actors on the soap within the soap are obviously having a lot of fun. This is like a real theatrical company type of thing, so it's no surprise it was shot by uh, Mark Frost. He actually directed all of the soap opera scenes that we see within within the show, and he did it with old friends from Minneapolis, except for the actress, who I guess was kind of like, what's going on here? Are we shooting straight for it soap opera? What? Like she was kind of confused because they were all joking around and having fun. And, uh, you know, but, but she caught wind of it and got sort of played along right away. So that's kind of a fun little note to keep in mind. And also we hear invitation to love in the background when Ben and Catherine are in the motel. Uh, We don't see it, but we do hear the character Montana uh, in the background talking to either Emerald or Jade. I, I think it's Jade. You know, this entire soap opera is online and uh, I guess now's the time. I'll link that below in the show notes. You can watch like a 20, if you want to do it, you can watch a 20-minute soap opera created for Twin Peaks, uh, as long as it's still there. I know it was a little while ago. For the subplots that were introduced in the previous episode, we have a continuation of the Harry-Albert rivalry. Uh, Gordon Cole is, you know, talking about Albert's new best friend, Harry Truman, and Harry's like, oh, no. So he's telling him that uh, Albert has filed a lot of complaints. He wants to take those uh, forward, and Cooper is absolutely not having it. He says, in my opinion, Sheriff Truman displayed the patience of a saint not clocking him a day earlier than he did. Much more robust defense than last time. He's just kind of like, Albert, how dare you? You know, this time he's like getting mad. And it's it's sort of more in the Cooper spirit in a way that if this is the road he's going to take and he's not just going to thumbs up every time the two are fighting with each other, which Lynch liked to do with him, then uh, at least he's going to be kind of boisterous in his defense. And he even calls Albert a city slicker I brought into town, relieving himself upstream. So this is this is a nice scene. He even kind of hangs up on his boss. And Gord, you know, he's a, a, a Cooper, Cooper, and he he's not going to have it. He's he's he and and Harry is very relieved. He says he didn't get much sleep the night before because he was so worried about hitting an FBI agent. And I just heard, uh, actually on the unwrapped coverage of episode three, apparently there was a line where he tells Cooper, you know, oh, that was probably illegal to hit him. So he's obviously pretty worried about it. We don't get anything about Andrew's death in this episode, and we don't get any standalone scenes. Everything is tied into a plot, just everything often tied into several plots at once. Here are the new subplots that we get this episode. We have Andy and Lucy uh, as as like uh, some sort of trouble in their relationship, and we didn't even know for sure they had a relationship up till now. There was um, some hints of it. Uh, certainly the alternate ending makes it pretty clear, but, you know, for the most part... Uh, they just obviously had some kind of connection. So right away, they're coming into the sheriff's station, Harry and Andy, and Andy tries to talk to Lucy, and uh, she just gives him a brush off, like she's not going to talk to him right now. And even calls him Deputy Brennan at some point. And then later on, he tells her about something that happened to him, and she's a little worried. She shows a little concern, but then she's kind of cold again. Excuse me, I have many files to look through. And he's just like, oh, what the hell? So downstairs uh, in the, uh, or not downstairs, but in the back room in the firing range, uh, Cooper's asking Harry, like, what's going on between Andy and Lucy? And, uh, you know, Harry's like, oh, okay, so this is Cooper up to his, you know, perceptive tricks. He says, was it body language? And Cooper says, in this case, it was yelling through a megaphone. So, you know, it's not too subtle that Lucy is having a problem with Andy and vice versa. I find it funny that even this 
trivial kind of comic. I won't say trivial because we care about these characters, but a very comical side plot. Even this is framed as a mystery because Andy doesn't know why she's doing what she's doing. So it's, you know, there's, there's such a sense of mystery on the show at this point that every plot has that element of intrigue to it. Nothing's just sort of a straightforward sitcom-y thing. And Cooper tells uh, Andy, in the grand design, women were drawn from a different set of blueprints. So now the reason they're down in that firing range is another new subplot this episode, Andy's misfire. When they're all waiting in the parking lot to storm into Philip Gerard's motel room, Andy drops his gun that goes off in the parking lot, which makes Catherine and Ben look out and notice that the cops are there. And Cooper's reaction, just, geez, oh, I love it. He just spins around, like, very frustrated. And it's funny, you know, Cooper, sometimes when he gets stern or angry, it seems like he's, quote, out of character. But there's ways he can do it that are very in character. And this, this feels like it to me. There's a very enthusiastic performance on McLaughlin's part. Later on, Andy, when they're going back to the sheriff's station, Andy apologizes to Cooper for the misfire, says he hasn't really fired his gun on the job before. And Cooper's like, okay, what you need is practice and lots of it. They go to the firing range. He actually says that at the firing range after Andy fires his gun and misses, like, I think, entirely the target. So they're all down there. They're shooting off guns. Hawk's pretty good. Uh, Andy is terrible. Cooper's so good that they think he didn't fire two shots. It turns out he fired it twice through the eyes of the target. So that we're getting a sense of all of them there and uh you know andy's gonna practice uh he says chin up andy he's gonna practice uh, cooper tells him practice i think three times a week or something and uh, harry says he'll provide the ordinance so they've got this little whole subplot going where andy's gonna improve his uh his shooting skills and finally the last subplot we're gonna mention for this episode cooper's past it's not really anything yet i could call it just a little standalone moment but i think it's worth mentioning because it's the first time we've gotten anything at all that i can think of about where cooper's coming from in any regard so he's talking about a woman he once knew he says that uh you know that this this was somebody who well i'm gonna read that full quote later when i when i talk about cooper in this episode but basically you know loved her she broke his heart and then he fires his gun and there's some sort of sense of oh something went wrong there and hawk gives his little speech says one woman can make you fly like an eagle another can give you the strength of a lion but only one in the cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder and the wisdom that you have known a singular joy i wrote that for my girlfriend cooper says oh local gal he says diane shapiro phd i think she's from stanford i can't remember but she's from an ivy league so, yeah, that's that's a fun little moment. Apparently, people have used that quote at their weddings and stuff. I think either Michael Horse, who plays Hawk, or uh, Robert Engels, who wrote the line, had a chuckle about that, that this is actually something people say to each other now when they're getting married, if they're big Twin Peaks fans. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that Cooper is given this sort of past relationship. It reminds me that relationships are a big part of Hill Street Blues, which, of course, Frost wrote for for years. Even characters who don't seem to call out for that type of development, like loners, just total eccentrics off to the side, they're all given these sort of complex dating lives. They're all almost all unmarried or getting divorced or having trouble in their marriage. Like there's just it's it, there's a sense of this the complications of the street spill over into the home life as well. Like it's hard for me to think of many characters on that show who just go home from a hard day's police work and have like, you know, 
wife and kids, oh, honey, I'm home, and they just kind of settle in. It doesn't have that vision of relationships at all. So it's interesting that that's almost being carried over a little bit now into Twin Peaks with Cooper. Here are the subplots that we haven't heard from for more than three episodes. These are the dormant ones. The Teresa Banks case and Bobby killing a guy. Neither has been mentioned since the pilot. For the uncanny this episode, we have Bob being sketched and Sarah saying he looked like an animal. He had filthy gray-on-gray hair, and she'd never seen him before. So now we're getting this image that was pure vision actually described. So it's like trying to put it into words, you know. And the, episode, the show does that a lot. It introduces these iconic images and then sort of finds a way to for the characters to try and articulate them. And she talks about two visions, you know, as, as Leland points out. She had two visions. So she says, it's night. A flashlight beam moves across the ground, and a hand, a gloved hand, lifts a rock and takes out a necklace broken in half. It was Laura's. And when they bring the sketch to the sheriff's station, Cooper confirms that this was the man he saw in his dreams, and he says, I didn't want to influence her. I'm a strong sender. So that's why he didn't go to the uh, questioning of Sarah, because he was afraid he'd project something psychically. So, you know, this is interesting how we're dealing with the uncanny elements of the show right now. In a way, they're becoming less so because they're no longer just these inexplicable moments standing out from the narrative, like Sarah leaping up from the couch or screaming as she sees a face. Uh, now we're actually, they're being articulated, they're being even submitted to a police procedural. On the other hand... Uh, though they're almost becoming more uncanny because we're getting confirmation now that these are in some fashion or another some sort of psychic connection there's something going on here and cooper is involved with it so you know it isn't just purely hey he had a funny dream and is it's uh telling him something it's like there's something almost like supernatural to his intuition going on here and same with sarah in the motel room, of course, Gerard plausibly denies everything, but there are still these eerie connections, so there's a sense of like the dream regurgitating something. It's almost like a sense of deja vu or, or something like that. Is he hiding something, or is Cooper's mind or something more nebulous trying to communicate through these touchstones in an abstract way? Almost like, think of, um, you know, they're doing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The aliens will like send these sort of tones and that's their way of like saying hello, basically, these sort of musical tones. It's almost like if something is communicating with Cooper, be it Laura's spirit or what, it's, or, or you know, in Interstellar, there's like books moving around on a bookcase that's sort of a, a way of speaking in code. And in this, it's like, okay, using these figures, arranging them, like here's a one armed man, but he is friends with a Bob, and there's a, you know, a bird flying across the curtain in the background in the red room and all this stuff. It's like speak, you know, Cooper even says it's a code waiting to be broken. It's like something or someone in whether it's his own mind or something else beyond him is using things from the real world to spell out a message. That's the best way I can describe it. And of course, when they get to the one stop next to the veterinary clinic in my dream, Mike said he and Bob lived above a convenience store. And uh, Harry says, Cooper, I think you'd be afraid to go to sleep at night. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow, we're going to discuss the TV and a historical context around this episode. What was on that night, what was going on in the culture and politics and the news and everything. Uh, like that. So see you then, and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.